Hey there, everybody. Before we kick off the final episode of the second season of our show, we wanted to thank everyone who's made it possible. Our team who has put in work even during finals. Faculty and staff at Brown University who have provided facilities and mentorship. The patients and physicians who've entrusted us with their stories. And all of you who have been faithfully listening from our very first episode a year and a half ago. We hope to be back next year with a brand new season. And we have plenty of surprises as to what that will look like. Stay tuned. I guess it was always there in the back of their mind that there was a strong possibility that they could get some type of a breast cancer. But, you know, you never believe it until it happens. Anytime we take a decision, we weigh the risk of failure against the possibility of success. Indeed, one of the qualities that inspires awe is the ability for people to take risky decisions. We laud people for rolling the dice and winning. But very rarely do we hear about the consequences of losing the gamble. In medicine, the stakes could not be higher. The decisions patients make can have fatal consequences. And oftentimes, patients struggle to understand the decisions set forth in front of them. They must rely on their healthcare provider. Today, we hear from Anne, who has had to balance a certain harm against a possible evil, and had to witness firsthand the impact of these decisions when the dice of fate fails to roll in her favor. And we will also hear from Dr. Don Dizon, on how he's chosen to guide patients and their families through these tough decisions. Dr. Dizon is the director of women's cancers at the Lifespan Cancer Institute in Providence. He's also the director of medical oncology at Rhode Island Hospital. I'm Viknesh Kasturi. I'm Alex Homer. And this is Back of the Chart. On an October day in 2018, Anne lost four hours. It's not clear where that time went. Indeed, perhaps one might say it was never lost at all. It was the climax to a rising action of symptoms, headaches that had dogged her lovely Rhode Island summer. Anne didn't think much of it and scheduled an appointment with her primary care physician the following week. I didn't realize I had a seizure, so I continued on for a week or so before I went to the doctors, and I went to my primary care doctor, and... um, He just looked at me and he said he was calling an ambulance, and he did. And then I I went to Merriam Hospital. They did a CAT scan there and saw something, and then they took me to Rhode Island Hospital. And um, they they saw a tumor. And then I think it was a week, and then I had the surgery right away. And um, all that's a little fuzzy. It was all a little fuzzy. After the surgery... They knew that it came from somewhere, so they they found out that it came from the breast, and it, it, that was also Dr. Tom's who and he gave me about five years to live. Anne prides herself on being put together. It allows her to be there for others, especially her large extended family, many of whom live nearby in the Rhode Island-Boston metro area. As her brother put it, My sister Anne is, uh, is the youngest in the family, and... Uh, she is probably the glue of the family. Anne's family has a lengthy history of cancer. So Anne had some idea of what she should expect in walking into Dr. Dizon's office. Dr. Dizon, reviewing Anne's chart before the first consult, also started forming some impressions about the new patient he was about to see. Looking at a chart, you get a picture of what your patient's going to look like. This was a young woman who had a brain tumor as her initial presentation of breast cancer. 
and she was coming in with a breast mass. So I was expecting to see someone who was on the midst of dying. So I was prepared to give a talk about um, quality of life being very important, disease control being very important, um, goals and preferences, you know, do we want to start with chemotherapy or not? Mostly about how I cannot cure this condition, but I'm hoping I can control it. Okay, so I had that prepared. And then I walked in the room and Anne came in with her son and it was still shocking. She looked great. So despite the fact you had had a brain tumor and had just gone through surgery in your head, she was sitting upright, she was dressed impeccably. You would not have been able to tell this woman just had brain surgery. And she did know that she had a, a cancer in her breast. But I don't think even then you really understood the extent of what you were facing. There was a difference here, which Anne, you told me about, which was you had a mutation that you had known about yeah. in your family. Yeah. The BRCA2, yeah. BRCA genes, namely BRCA1 and BRCA2, are tumor suppressor genes. This means that when functioning normally, the BRCA genes play an important role in repairing DNA damage that can lead to uncontrolled tumor growth. So if either BRCA1 or BRCA2 are mutated, they no longer effectively suppress tumor growth. In other words, you're more likely to develop breast cancer. Anne had taken a genetic test many years prior and tested positive for the BRCA2 gene mutation, which raised a whole series of difficult questions. I went in there thinking, I'm healthy, I'm fine, I'm, I'm going to do this. And then when I did test positive for it, it was very emotional. It was shocking because then you carry that down to your children. So it was, um, it was super emotional for me, like sitting in that office and her telling me that because I wasn't expecting it. Because, you know, you never think it's going to happen to you. And, and it wasn't even anything happening to me. So... Um, but they wanted me to go through everything. They wanted me to remove my breasts, have hysterectomy, and I remove have to... Remove your ovaries? Right, remove my ovaries, yeah. And I have to say, I mean, although I had my children and all of that, I had a little bit of an attitude about that. Like, why would I do something that might happen? Why would I open that can of worms, you know? Even when we had met, uh, the question that we both struggled with is, why didn't we do anything about this earlier? Women do struggle with this idea that I am healthy, I have a great body that I love. You're telling me you have this mutation and you want to take everything that defines me as a woman off. You know, and physicians. That's exactly right. Yeah. We, we well, recommend it. Mm -hmm. We recommend you do this. Mm -hmm. By the age of 45, we recommend you undergo bilateral mastectomy. We recommend, as soon as you're done with your children, you remove your ovaries. And you haven't even had cancer. And then, you know, as time went on, and I read, you know, I, I read a lot. You know, I read a lot while I was home, and I thought I wouldn't do it any different. I never would have, you know, it's just such a personal choice. 
Anne was the first person who came in who had this attitude that, you know what, it was meant to be. I wouldn't have done it any differently, and I'm certainly not to blame for this, you know. Um, but I do remember initially there was that struggle. Yeah, it was a back and forth. It's still a little bit of a back and forth. And just um, being the one responsible for hurt, hurting your family around you, it's like really hurtful to the people around you. You know, I think dying may be the easier part. I'll, I will tell you that... Um, uh, it's such a lonely feeling. And I, I think every anybody who has cancer says that. It's just no matter... And I had the best support ever. My family, my friends. It's so lonely. It's just... Um, so when I found out, it was just, I never accepted it. I don't think I ever, like, really accepted it. Just looking at death, like, it's really having that death sentence, knowing that you only have this long to live. When we speak, I look you in the eye, and I tell you what I'm thinking. But I also make contact with everybody else in the room making them feel like they're part of that relationship. You know, I always say when I do lectures on this, you know, that cancer is a social disease. Mm -hmm. You know, we have patients in a room, and it's Anna's a primary patient, but those people with her are our patients too. Dr. Dizon laid out the treatment options. Option one, they could pursue an aggressive treatment that would require multiple rounds of chemotherapy. Option two, he could pursue a milder form of chemotherapy with fewer side effects. This would just control the cancer that was already there. But there's certain things that Anne told me about her life and how she's lived. And it was truly the sense of that might be what the data says, but I'm not in that data set. I'm me. You know? So when I was talking about all the side effects of the chemotherapy, I could see her sort of detach from the conversation not because I wasn't using I think the one word that I think I could have convinced you to do any of this is that if you do this I can cure you Mm -hmm. so I think part of my I'll say it my lesson that I learned from you is that the words I don't know are really powerful ones and when she asked will any of these cure me I said, I don't know. You know, that freed me up to say, well, what do you want to do? There was also a third option. A pill had just been approved that suppressed the BRCA gene responsible for Anne's cancer. But Dr. Dizon had never used the drug, and spending time on ineffective treatments could prove fatal. Do I take the leap of faith and say, well, there are these drugs available that silence that mutation that you have? that was associated with your breast cancer, that just got approved for metastatic breast cancer, do we just skip chemotherapy altogether and just give you this pill, knowing that that's really not standard of care. Usually you want to try chemotherapy, um, but sort of putting it all out there and not knowing what's the right answer. You know, I went back to the room after I saw you for a bed, you know, and suddenly pulled my group and said, what would you do? It's like, 
you know, three options here on the table. Everyone said chemo. You should give her chemo. Really? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I didn't tell you. <laughs> but, but you know, it was that new. Anne chose to take a chance on the pill. You know, I saw, like, my mother really just fight to live. And my father the same. So, um, so I get that from them. What I didn't want, I didn't want to do any drugs. I didn't want my mind to be altered. My mind was altered through the surgery, and that was, um, that was devastating to me because I did things in the hospital that I don't re- like. I don't recall the hospital, and I just I want to remember. I want to remember every minute of every day. So. Um, if I could forget some bad things, that one that would be okay. But, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's just different. Um, like it's it's been it's been over twenty years since my parents had that, and uh, and my sister. You know, it's been quite a few years. So um, they all fought, and I just know I I the main thing was that I didn't want I didn't want my mind altered. I was really worried about my mind being altered, so I wanted to. If I was gonna, if I was gonna leave this world, I wanted to go out with a clear mind. A few months later, Anne had a PET scan done and went to Dr. Dizon's office to see if the treatment worked. So that day, it was my husband and my son in the room, and I think you were just about dancing in the I was room or, or holding back a dance. So, um, yeah, he put put it up the screen. He showed me the screen before, which was all sandy, like salt and peppery, and then then the the new scan was just like all white and it was um it was chilling it was it was hard for me i i think the next visit i told you um it was hard for me to wrap my head around it like i did all the you know so excited but it's so many emotions but of course excitement but it took me a few weeks to wrap my head around that so your husband was in tears practically hearing that you had a clean scan. It, it, it is remission right now, right? Yeah. It is remission. He won't say I don't have cancer. You don't have cancer. You're in remission. Oh, you said that. Hey, That's I the did. first time you said it. No, it's not. Yes, it is. When I showed you the PET scan, I said there's no cancer. Look, it's clean. <laughs> he didn't say that. He said he would wait for two years before he said I it. did say that before. Well, he said it right now. No. He said right <laughs> When I saw Anne's PET scan and it was clean, it was incredible. I didn't think I did it, but I think I had access to a pill. Mm-hmm. A pill had no side effects. Could do this, and that's an incredible thing to watch. We need to do it more often. But these experiences and the ones where I'm actually, I feel like I've been able to help people leave this earth and die with dignity those are incredible experiences that stay with you and it's a real privilege to be able to do it the art of medicine is um, being able to look someone in the eye and not label them as difficult that's the art of medicine right there that's the art of life <laughs> you know, if you're stuck in a room and you're not getting anywhere, because I almost saw that that might happen if all I had to offer you was chemo, right? She was stubborn. She's difficult. There's a story here. 
she's seen it before. She's seen it in her family, and she knows it's not what she wants for herself. Yeah, there's a story. Not everyone is difficult. Not everyone is difficult if they don't want to do what you recommend. I will say that I don't know if I've uh, seen more suffering than the folks who are watching this mm-hmm. and have no ability to stop it. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the most incredible husband and you have the most incredible kids, but I know they worry and I know they hang on everything I say about how you're doing because they know they can't do anything about it. It's like you're in a nightmare, you're in a dream. No, no, I'm having a good dream. And you just don't know what's going to happen next. I mean, none of us know what's going to happen. But yes, as far as me worrying about it reoccurring, of course, yeah. Um, every I, I now as much as I hate going for the scans or the blood work or any of it, I can't wait because I just want to hear good news. You know, I just want to I just want to hear that again. You know, you're okay. You know, everyone who's coming in has a story, and if you don't learn that story, you rob yourself of one of the most important aspects of our profession, which is interaction and connection in a very profound way with someone who needs help. We're all here together. We're all connected somehow. And just having that connection with your patient is just, you know, put the medicine aside for a minute, which is just for a minute, just for one minute. And then uh, just to get to know them because it it just, it's a feel-good thing for, for both the doctor and the patient. We'd like to thank Dr. Dizon and Anne for sharing their story with us. And we'd like to thank you for listening. This concludes the second season of Back of the Chart. Make sure you subscribe wherever you are listening right now. Write us a five-star review on iTunes and follow us on Twitter for the latest updates here at the studio. It's been a wonderful ride this season, and we can't wait to show you what we have in store for next year. Back of the Chart is executive produced and co-hosted by Alex Homer and Viknesh Kasturi. Our producer is Sierra Fang Horvath, our editor is Neha Mukherjee, and our patient liaison is John Lin. The graphics are by Juliana Kim. The music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to faculty and staff at Brown University for making this possible.